everyone, and welcome back to Mitten Politics, where change is political. I'm Ian Duncanson, your host for the uh, podcast series. Uh, this is part two of our sex, gender, and identity series. Uh, so I'll be this will be our our final part of my conversation with Sean about some of the issues that we wanted to unpack. Um, so a couple things as we go in because we launch right into Sean and I talking about our coming out stories. I just think it's important to acknowledge and mention that one of the things that people who are are straight, cisgender, who are not part of the queer community should understand is that the experience of growing up is quite different for someone who is queer in any, any facet of it. So some people, they're able to come out to their family and have a semi- standard experience, if you will, not that there's really any standard experience. But when I think about my experience growing up, I spent my entire life all the way up through pretty much graduating high school, having, you know, family Thanksgivings and family Christmases and family holidays, birthdays and get togethers, where both of my sisters had their boyfriends there and they were embraced by the family and asked questions and kind of brought in under the wing of family. I, on the other hand, never had that experience for the entire first 19 years of my life. And then after that, going, you know, going away to college and things are different. I never had that experience in childhood of bringing a boyfriend home and, you know, introducing them to my parents and, you know, having my family get to know them and who they are and going and meeting their family and having their family get to know who I am. So when you think about dating and relationships in the queer community, it's completely different. We don't get to have crushes in elementary school and, you know, hold hands with boys in middle school. And we don't, we don't get to have that experience. And, you know, that's focusing primarily on sexual orientation. But if you think about, uh, you know, the trans community, for example, being stuck in a society that more often than not forces gender norms based on genitals or biology, you're supposed to like this because you're a boy. You're supposed to like that because you're a girl. Boys don't do this and girls don't do that. Um, it, it creates... a a sort of warped psychology that we have to unpack in our adulthood in addition to finding who we are as an adult. And so I really encourage you to, you know, lengthen the fuse when you think about uh, your queer friends who are adults, who are encountering new and different situations. Yes, we all encounter different things in our life and we all have varying levels of privilege, et cetera. But it's really important to recognize that, you know, the assumptions about an entire group of people based on stereotypes are unacceptable and that you really need to get to know and learn the individuals uh, in your life who do identify as queer and what their unique experience has been. I feel fortunate at my age to have grown up at a time where even by the time I got out of high school, I was comfortable being out and going to a university that had uh, 
an LGBTQ resource center for me to learn, had social groups for me to meet other people who are experiencing similar, similar things. And I think about older generations that didn't even have that. Uh, they, they didn't, they've spent, you know, in, in some cases, the majority of their life being in the closet. So it's, it's, it truly is an experience that I think, you know, we like to just lump people as this or that. You've had this this experience or that experience. You fit this stereotype or that stereotype. And I just really, the main point I want this series of, of episodes to do is to encourage people to think deeper, to reflect on things before you act. Um, you know, if you're listening to this one and you listen to the first one, go back and listen to the first part of this again. Um and, and really share these, share these with people who you think could benefit from them because there is a, a fair amount of trauma, trauma that comes with being a part of the queer community and experiencing life through that lens. With that, I'm going to go ahead and dive in. So this is part two, um, and we're just going to kind of resume where we left off. So there's not going to be a lead in or anything like that. Um, and then I will come back at the end for a conclusion. Here we go. Um, all right, so I wanted to uh, spend just just a brief minute or so. Um, I'll, I'll share first, and then if you, you know, whatever you feel comfortable sharing, just kind of feel like it's valuable sometimes to share um, kind of our experience of finding ourselves and coming out and kind of what that, that journey looked like. Um, so for me, uh, I did not come out to my family um, or anyone really until my senior year. It was like the end of my senior year of high school. Um, I had uh, been dating girls off and on, you know, here and there, not like I was always in a relationship. I was not a womanizer, if you will. Um, I walked to the beat of it though. I recently saw a TikTok that was like really all we're ever doing. I think it was a Trixie and Katya thing that was like, when you're gay, you're like walking so fast because you're literally like womanizer, womanizer. <laughs> but that's awesome. Um, so I, you know, I dated dated girls in high school and I dated one girl for part of my senior year. And I'm pretty sure that she kind of knew, like we were kind of dating, but we didn't make it to the point of in a relationship. I think she might've had some inklings that there might've been something more. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't until like a few months before the end of my senior year that I uh, started talking to one of my friends um, about having curiosities, et cetera. Um, and he at the time told me that he thought of himself as bi, but was not, you know, out. We had like two kids who were like completely out at my high school. Um, and so it wasn't really until I actually, I met somebody uh, shortly before the summer. Um, I started like hanging out with him. We dated for like a month and basically would just go make out in the woods. And I was like, <laughs> okay, this is cool. <laughs> But uh, after him, it was, uh, I ended up meeting a guy over the summer, our Memorial Day weekend, Technofest 2009, <laughs> I remember it well. Um, and 
after I had started dating him, I felt it was time to come out to my family. And so I told my sisters first because I knew they were the lowest risk and both of them <laughs> cried and hugged me. And then Aww. I told my dad and he said, you know, relatively straight faced, I will support you. And I appreciate you telling me, you know, you're, I'm always going to love you. You're my son. Um, and then promptly came in bright and early the next morning to give me a further sex ed talk. Mind you, he was a, he was a, a middle school sex ed teacher for several years. So um, that it, it was a challenge uh, with him getting from acceptance to, or like tolerance to acceptance to mm-hmm. embracing. But I feel, I do feel fortunate that in my experience, my family was mostly on board. Um, I was able to bring my boyfriend around relatively quickly, at least early on. Um, Mm. And then I went off to college. So that was kind of like the (laughs) the catalyst for me is I never spent any of that high school time, like meeting and dealing with other people's families and whether or not they approved. And although it was funny that once I came out publicly, of course, all these kids I knew from high school started adding me on Facebook out of the blue. And I'm like, you're the popular kid. We never liked each other. Why are you adding me? Oh, it's because you're gay. Awesome. Like, okay. Um, but yeah, so like that was kind of my experience, but it didn't really end there because I still had years of, you know, coming out to people that I would meet and coming out to coworkers, mm-hmm. coming out to friends, parents, when I would just be hanging out with them and they'd ask about if I had a girlfriend and stuff like that. And so it took me a, quite a while. It wasn't really until probably the end of college that I got comfortable enough where now I don't think twice about coming out to anybody that I meet. It's, it's not an experience for me anymore. It's just a statement. But that was that was kind of my my um, Do you want to share a, just a little bit about yours? Yeah, for sure. So, um, mine looks very different than what you just described, but that's that's okay. Um, I was born and raised like fundamentalist evangelical Christian, so I I never really had any kind of like education about like any kind of LGBT topics other than gay people are going to hell. Um, I never really had any exposure to any, like, even LGBT, like, I don't know, prominent figures, like, I have memories of, like, like, when, uh, when Chaz Bono came out as trans, I don't remember, like, what year that was, but I remember, like, my parents talking about how they couldn't believe that Chaz was doing that to their parents, or his parents, Mm -hmm. and so just all kinds of stuff like that, that I was, like, taught growing up really didn't set me up to have an easy journey, but, um, I didn't start to realize, well, actually I take that back. There's kind of two components to my journey. The first was figuring out that I'm not like straight. And then the second was figuring out, like, I'm not cisgender either. Um, I first started realizing that I, like, I was at least bisexual because that was the only term I knew at the time, my freshman year of college, and mind you, this was a, Christ, a private Christian university, so that just kind of adds a whole other layer to that, but that was when, like, I had my first crush on a girl, and, and I still had the mindset of, like, oh, I'm going to hell for this, um, so college really wasn't a good time for me. Um, after I got out of, after I finished college, though, shortly after I 
left like Christianity, the church I'd been raised in, all of that. And once I did that, that was when I started like educating myself about like LGBT issues. I think partly because like, you know, I knew I was attracted to girls at that point, but I don't know. I think part of me knew something else like was still going on with me that I needed to figure out. Um, but anyway, I came out as trans in, when was it? I think it was like August of 2018. So like, honestly, I haven't been out for too long yet, but like the three years that I've been out now have been like the best years of my entire life thus far. Like <laughs> the difference between like, or the contrast between like who I am now and who I was before when I was like still in church and before I came out, like it's just night and day. Um, so yeah, now I'm, I identify as non-binary and pansexual and I'm completely happy. <laughs> I love my life now, which I definitely didn't used to. <laughs> Good. I'm so glad to hear that. And thank you for sharing that. Um, you know, I, I had difficult steps along the way, but I, I find that I was somewhat privileged in my experience of um, support and uh, independence and where I was going. And then when you, especially when you look at a religious component, I think that that always makes it harder, both for your own processing, but also for support from family. Oh, definitely. Um, um, sorry, one more thing to add. Um, oh, go ahead. I, so, sorry, I, I forgot to mention it, but um, so I only, from the time I came, I came out as trans up until just a couple, like a, literally a week ago, I was living with my parents still. And when, when I told them, hey, I, I want to start going by Sean now, because Sean's not the name I was given at birth, they, they told me no. And so they continued to just use my birth name for two and a half years after that. So I don't know, it, it just adds a whole other layer. Like um, you had mentioned about like the component of like family support. Yeah, no, I, I think it can be hard. Um... In terms of family support, uh, especially with a religious a, a religious piece tied to it, I have mm -hmm. a very interesting um, relationship with religion, and um, in, in a lot of contexts, I have no love for what I what I see religion doing. Though I respect also that not all religion or religious expression is the same. Um, mm -hmm. I just think that it's done done a lot of harm. Um, at, by and large, especially to the LGBTQ community. Um, and so uh, I'm sorry that, that, that the experience was difficult and I appreciate the strength in, in sharing that and being open to talking about it. And I'm really truly glad and proud that you uh, are, are feeling happy and feeling free to be yourself and uh, you know live your authentic life. Definitely. Um... And like, honestly, like I really, like I make it my goal to just like kind of try to be open about like the experiences I've been through, whether it be like, just like queer topics in general, queer topics in relation to like religious institutions. Because like, I don't know, I just, I want my experiences to be able to help other people, whether it be through educating other people on like things like that or helping someone who's dealing with the same types of things in their personal lives. <laughs> Yeah. And, and it, it does make an impact. You know, my hope is that even this podcast will have an impact in educating people and helping people to understand these, these situations. So 
if they are, you know, allies or potential allies, that they're able to have conversations and explain things to other people um, who might come to them with questions or have preconceptions. Um, along the lines of coming out, I think it's also important to mention the importance of not outing other people. Just because someone has come out to you does not mean that they are comfortable being out with everyone. So I always try and make a point, um, you know, and, and with some of my friends, I know that they don't care. They tell everybody anything. It's not a big deal. <laughs> so like, and they have told me as such, but by and large, if somebody, you know, comes out to me, for example, as trans, it's mm -hmm. not my role to, in talking to somebody else, inform them or confirm that that person is trans who has told me that they are. That is the person who has told me that's right to be the one to choose to or not to disclose. Oh, that. for sure. And so I think, you know, when it comes to gender, when it comes to um, sexual orientation as well, I think, you know, if, if somebody wants to disclose it, then that's their choice and no one else's. Um, I think it's also important to note that there's definitely a lot of cases where it is just like a matter of like the person not being comfortable, like coming out to other people yet. But I think it's also important to note that there are circumstances where it can literally be like a, a, an issue of like the person's like security and safety, depending on what like their circumstances are with like Absolutely. family relationships. Absolutely. And even things like jobs and, you know, like there's, there are still things that can be used to discriminate against sure. individuals um, in, in multiple facets of our society. And so um, in, in some cases, you're absolutely right. It's, it's also choosing not to disclose because of safety. And so sometimes we're also not disclosing because we don't trust the person that might, you know, find out mm -hmm. about what they're going to do with that information as well. For sure. Um, all right, so we've got a lot of a lot of topics here. I want to make sure that we don't go too long. Um, okay. But uh, so I figure we can briefly go through um, talking a little bit about personal pronouns, prefixes, and chosen names. Mm -hmm. um, so specifically, I like to, I like, I actually heard this more recently, calling them uh, personal pronouns instead of preferred pronouns, because personal pronouns reflects that they are your pronouns, that it's not right. just, oh, I'm this, but I prefer this. Um, right. So personal pronouns are, are the most common that I see are um, he, him, she, her, or they, them, mm -hmm. or some combination of he, they, or she, they, if they identify as potentially um, you know, both non-binary and mm -hmm. sometimes with, uh, you know, male or female. Some people um, um, are also using um, what's called neo-pronouns, which are just essentially like new additions to like the English set of pronouns. Um, ones I've seen are like Z, spelled like Z-E, or, um, or Zim, Z-I-M, things like that. Um, and I don't encounter them too often, but I think it's still important to recognize them as like legitimate and valid. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't know anyone personally uh, that I'm aware of who, who uses, um, you know, something outside of the, the three that I mentioned. Um, 
but if I ever did encounter, I would certainly want, encounter someone, I would certainly want to also learn more effectively how to use them. Um, by probably by doing my own research, because mm -hmm. I hate to always be the, you know, make someone else be the <laughs> spokesperson for their identity. So, um, but yeah, I appreciate you mentioning that. And I think that we should understand that there is more uh, than just, you know, the ones that mm -hmm. I mentioned. And, and, and people language are, is always, oh, sorry. Oh no, you're, go ahead. I was just going to say like, language is always evolving. New words get added to the dictionary every year or so. Why not include pronouns that are added every year? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so prefixes are, um, you know, that that title that goes before the name that are also gendered. So things like Mr., uh, Miss, Ms., or Mrs. Also, I've seen uh, Mix, MX, as being mm -hmm. a gender neutral um, or non-binary version, essentially, of those. Mm -hmm. uh, have you seen that, or do you use I have. Well? Yep, um, I've never, I mean, I've never used them, but really because I've never really had an opportunity where a prefix like that is, like, necessary. <laughs> yeah, I think prefixes in general are, um, they're reserved for like more important people, like with important positions. <laughs> I agree. And, and I also think that to some degree they're fading um, mm -hmm. in, in popularity with, you know, generationally, I think there's a transition away from this, the formality of having to use prefixes. Right. Um, and so I, I personally actually enjoy that. I don't think that we need to uh, speak to someone by gendering them as like, <laughs> directly I don't know I just yeah that's I think like prefixes are unnecessary wrong foot. <laughs> yeah um and then uh lastly chosen names um so I, again I like chosen name as as far or as a, a better option than preferred name but essentially right. being um your chosen name would be like your name that is different from what your was legal assigned name. at birth right or your legal name yeah, I had um like someone who's like, they're not part of the queer community, but they're an ally. They had asked, um, you know, some people like get upset over saying like, like preferred pronouns, but like not as much with like a preferred name. Um, and, and so they were like trying to look for that distinction, like what makes it more offensive or not. And um, the way I explained it was that pronouns aren't something that can be like legally designated. They don't have any legal relevance to your identity. But for like trans people who are like either waiting to get a name change or just aren't able to because it's such a long, expensive process, um, they can't, they, they need to, they have to dis differentiate between like their legal name and like their, their chosen name. Because like when you go to the doctor, like a name that you've picked for yourself, but that doesn't match your ID isn't going to do you any good. Sure. Yeah. Thank you for explaining that. I think that's imp important. Um, so one of the things, uh, that I've also heard, uh, a legal name be described as if it's, if it doesn't match your chosen name, or if your legal name has changed, um, is a dead name or dead naming someone, which is essentially, um, doing like what you mentioned that your parents had done when you, mm -hmm. uh, disclosed your, your name to them, your new name to them, and they continue to use your birth name, your legal name. Yep. Um, at the time. And so um, 
I think it's it's never okay to dead name someone and it's important to respect. And, and that's, I think, why I kind of like the term dead mm-hmm. name is that it's reflecting the significance that that name right. is no longer ascribed to you. It's no longer how you identify. It's no longer um, referring to you. Mm-hmm. I think it's also important to note that um, like, I don't, it's never okay to ask someone what their dead name is. Like trans, like people who have like, who go by a different name than what they used to be. Like there's varying degrees of comfort that they have with like their dead name. Some people are comfortable like talking to like friends or family about like dead na- their dead name. Some aren't, um, but like never ask someone what their dead name is or ask them about it. If they want to talk about it, they'll initiate it with you. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's important. And if you do happen to see it because of a document you see or something like that, I think it's still appropriate to keep that to yourself and not make a stink or a fuss of it, not ask them about it unless they choose to confide in you. Definitely. Um, so in terms of, I, I, we've got, I put so much on the agenda for today. (laughs) Um, so when it comes to uh, pronouns, prefixes, and chosen names, um, I think it's important to disclose your own if you feel comfortable doing so. And it's also important to ask others, um, you know, ask them their pronoun, what their pronouns are so that you can be respectful. Mm -hmm. Um, I know a lot of times, you know, like at work, we put our pronouns in our email signature and we can put them on our internet profile, et cetera. Um, but I, I like the simplicity and I've, I've watched some training videos and things on this, but I like the simplicity of simply saying, hi, my name's Ian. I use he, him pronouns. What are yours? Yes. You know, I was going like, to mention that same thing. Like, especially like one of the best things like allies of the queer community to do can do is like just normalizing, like sharing your pronouns whenever you meet like anyone new, regardless of whether it's, they're like a queer person. Um, and I think that by disclosing your own, that's kind of the easiest way to open the conversation to ask for someone else's also. Definitely. Um, and also really only in cases where it matters, right? Like I'm not going to walk up to some stranger on the street and ask their <laughs> pronouns because I want to know their gender. That's none of my business unless I'm interacting with them and discussing things and, and want to be respectful. Um, right. <laughs> So on the lines of, you know, some of the things we've talked about, one of the things that always baffles me are gender reveal parties, which are really more commonly genital reveal parties. Um, yeah. <laughs> or, or sometimes sex reveal parties, but I don't know of any parent I've ever seen who um, announces they're having an intersex baby. Um, and so I really do think it is more uh, about their genitalia or the, um, mm-hmm. well, that's, that's most of the time what it or, is because of the hormones and, and how yeah. they identify. And like, in most cases, like from like the compilations of like dumb gender reveal party things I've seen online, like they're mostly about just like perpetuating these gender norms that society has constructed. I was saying in some cases they can even be harmful. Like I saw this one gender reveal cake online for for like the two things that it said bows or badges and the badges showed like a police officer badge like yes okay let's just say that only men can be 
police officers now that's that's a great step in the right direction <laughs> right right well and and you're right it it perpetuates the gender norms and i understand mm-hmm. the excitement of having a child and whatever and i i think that we've put so much emphasis on oh if you're having a girl you get to do these things with them and if you're having a boy you get to do these things with them and so there's excitement as a parent around these like gendered expectations of what their relationship with their child will be mm-hmm. and i think that's all a load of crap because you have no idea what your child is going to like and what they're going to want to wear and what they're going to want to play mm-hmm. with what they're going to be interested in doing with you regardless of their gender and regardless of whether their you know sex at birth uh matches their their gender identity down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I, I was gay. I liked, uh, a whole lot of things that could be considered typically male, um, <laughs> you know, hobbies and things, but I also liked to have my fingernails painted by my sisters and dance around in tutus. So, I mean, <laughs> there's, there's all sorts of different things that your kid might like or mm-hmm. want to do. And the most forward thinking parents that I've encountered are the ones who say, Take the kid with you to the store and see what toys they want to buy. Walk them around the entire store. Don't take them to the gendered section. Right. See what toys they enjoy. Ask them what they enjoy and what they like. Maybe have clothing that is, you know, of all different colors when they're growing up. You can't just because someone is declared to be a boy doesn't mean you have to dress them in blue for their entire life or pink, you know, like mix and match, let them live, just Mm -hmm. love your child, (laughs) you know, announce that you're having a child, (laughs) (laughs) a person. Yeah. So I, I feel like this, I just felt it would, we'd be remiss if we didn't men- mention gender reveal parties while discussing mm-hmm. this. And I, I hope that more people do think about the impact that those have because they, they are, um, reinforcing and, and sometimes hurtful to those that right. um, are around them. Interesting um, fact. Um, the, the lady who's like largely credited with popularizing the whole like concept of gender reveal parties. Now her kid is now, um, non-binary trans and she wrote like an article saying like yeah I popularized this but now I'm seeing the harmful effects that it's having which was really cool to read (laughs) yeah yeah that is important all right we've got a couple more things to cover here um so I I also wanted to touch on just the word queer we did talk about it a little bit earlier it's kind of the umbrella term for a lot of different factions of the community it's Mm -hmm. also been used as a slur in the past to refer to people um, in a harmful way. I typically tend to view the word as sort of a reclaiming of the the power in that situation and saying, yeah, I am queer. And also allowing queer to be um, anything and everything without being, um, being stuck under the expectations of various labels, but allows you to just say, I'm queer and mm-hmm. let that be enough without having to explain every every element of yourself to someone else. Uh, right. But I know some people are still a little bit iffy about, about the word. And to be fair, typically it's used by the community to refer to ourselves, not mm-hmm. necessarily somebody on the outside referring to someone from the community. But what are your right. feelings about the word queer? I mean, I pretty much feel the same way. Like, I personally like the term queer, 
because it's it's just such a great umbrella term. It covers so much, but like in an like in a way that's easy to understand. But I would also say that like if you ever encounter someone like who's like LGBTQ that doesn't like being identified as queer, then just respect respect their personal wishes and like don't refer to them like as a queer person. Yeah, absolutely. And and like I said, it really is more of an internal like a a community word. Um, right. Or, or, you know, someone could refer to the queer community and I probably wouldn't take, you know, take it the wrong way. But if somebody, you know, who is straight and cisgender um, was talking about their queer friend, um, I might ask some questions about whether that friend has self-described themselves as queer specifically mm-hmm. or um, kind of what, what their motivation is for it. Because typically, like, I wouldn't want my straight friends to call me queer. Um, you know, unless under the right circumstances where we're like, I know it's a certain thing, but typically I would, I would be like, "Mm, gay is fine. Don't call me. (laughs) Um, but, uh, so some, I wanted to cover briefly some things that you should not ask people. So you already talked about, um, asking people their dead name. I also think it's wholly inappropriate to ask anyone about their genitals, which is literally what you're doing if you're asking someone if they've had surgeries <laughs> done. Um, I think one of the, the mottos I live by, even you know, in the context of sexual orientation, one of the mottos that I live by is, unless you're in my bedroom, it's none of your business. Um, That's a great motto. <laughs> I mean, am I wrong? <laughs> no. <laughs> so, you know, and I, I think that one of the things along those lines that we have to be, be able to normalize as well, and this is part of the toxic masculinity thing is if I, as a guy, uh, go up and ask another guy for his phone number, he needs to, whether straight or not, or whether gay or not, um, not be angry or insulted that a guy mm-hmm. asked him for his number me asking you for your number is not a reflection of your sexual orientation. It's a reflection of mine. Um, and so, you know, like, and if someone is interested and, and comes up to me, same thing, um, you know, if, and, and that's a way where it, you're kind of asking if about someone's orientation. Um, if you are interested in pursuing something with that individual, then it kind of makes sense to simply ask if they're interested in doing something with you, getting coffee, going on a date, et cetera. And that's really the only time it's appropriate, I think, to ask someone um, their, their sexual orientation. I, all the, in, the one exception, I guess, on top of that, because there's always exceptions, is like if you're asking for a friend. So like mm-hmm. if some girl came up to me and was like, hey, my friend <laughs> thinks you're really cute. Are you gay? Or are you, I, like really, it should be matter more if I'm interested in her friend than if I'm gay, period. But right, I, I, I accept that situation. <laughs> is that kind of how you feel about it too? Is like, you know, if, if people, there's, there's not really any need for someone to know unless you're disclosing your pronouns or there's yeah, interest in pursuing romantic something. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, all right, uh, two last things. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask a little bit about um, are kind of your feelings about drag, which we touched on earlier. I've heard some uh, some opinions uh, that, and, and feelings, you know, valid feelings, 
that people have that um, that the culture of drag, at least as it exists today, is um, is actually potentially in some ways harmful to the trans community or um, I've heard the terms violent against the trans community used before. Um, and I kind of wanted to see um, if you had thoughts and opinions on that, because I've always kind of found it, especially when I look at the origins of drag, I've kind of found it to be um, more about breaking the gender expectations and, um, you know, an, an art form in, you know, really gender illusions through, through art. Um, but I'm also, I, I'm always open to hearing additional reasons or, or feelings that people might have about that. I mean, honestly, I haven't really given too much thought to like, whether or not there's any problems with like, dra like drag as a whole. Like me personally, I don't have a problem with it. I think I view it as like an art form, a way people, a way certain people have fun and just express themselves. And I think as, as long as they're not like actively doing any harm like to like trans people, then I think it's okay. But also I haven't thought too much about it. So I might be missing something. Yeah, and, and I'm always trying to, to learn more um, and I probably will since, especially since we're talking about it, probably do a little bit more research to understanding that perspective. I have acknowledged problematic elements in um, televised drag culture um, in terms of, you know, even when I think about like, you know, a lot of people, mainstream people that are thinking about drag, think about RuPaul's mm -hmm. Drag Race. And I know, you know, early on, um, there were a lot of terms that were used, um, things that were offensive um, ways of talking about things, songs that were created and used, uh, that were somewhat transphobic, mm -hmm. um, and, and RuPaul would claim, you know, well, I have the authority to do this despite being a cisgender male. Um, and so I, I think it's good that a lot of that has been transforming, that there are more, uh, drag or more drag contestants who are trans themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I would eventually like to see it open up more to just being drag performers instead of drag queens or drag right. kings. Right. I, I was just about to mention that I've seen like a, a push online to, to shift from calling them drag queens to drag performers. And I think that's a really great idea. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, I've watched, you know, obviously they're shows that were created cinematically, but um, mm -hmm. things like Pose and the documentary Paris is Burning. And I've recognized that a lot of what we kind of view as drag culture or like the art of drag came out of the trans community in a lot of ways, um, mm -hmm. you know, gender illusions and, you know, getting, getting dressed up to be, you know, this, this persona that they wanted to present. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that there's, there's, I, I think there's a big picture or, or a bigger picture. I think there's more to the story than um, something being right or wrong. But I also think it is important that we continue to look at and challenge the things that need to be taken a step firmer. Uh, Definitely. Step further. 
Um, all right. And then the last thing we'll talk about, and then we can close out because I know it's been a long episode. Um, all right. So the last thing I wanted to touch on is uh, straight people in queer spaces. Um, Cause I think it's important to mention uh, and for, for straight people to understand. Um, so a brief background on this, um, you know, I've been going to gay bars since I was, or queer bars really, um, since I was uh, in college was when I first started going to them. Um, and one of the things that always stood out to me was that, um, you know, I had straight girlfriends who would come with me, you know, would go out with me and things like that. And, and that was, you know, never a problem. It was always good. Um, well, I guess always good is a relative term. Uh, depends on the <laughs> friend. But um, one of the things that always shocked me was when like bachelorette parties of, you know, a straight girl and all of her straight girlfriends would decide that they're going to go to a gay bar for their bachelorette party. And while I understand the joy of going somewhere where you feel safe, potentially safer, free from mm -hmm. risk of um, ultimately what toxic masculinity results in within straight men who don't know when to take a hint when someone's not interested. Um, but also it often turned into kind of taking control of the night or taking like control of the attention of the night. Um, and I, I really like, I, what I want is for straight people to understand that when you are in queer spaces, you are the guest. Mm -hmm. When you are in queer spaces, it is not about you. It is, you are in, you are a guest in someone else's house. I don't know if you've had any experience um, with things like that in, in any queer spaces, you know, beyond queer bars, but. Sadly, I've never really been in any queer spaces. I, I had just gotten to a point last year when I was like confident enough to like start getting out and socializing as like my authentic self, but then the pandemic hit. So <laughs> I haven't been Very to Spiral fair. or any other kind of spaces like that yet, which is sad. But so I don't know, I guess I can't speak too much to that issue because I haven't really experienced it yet. Yeah, um, well, you know, it's and that's OK. I think um, it's just it's important for people to understand that, you know, like even down here in Royal Oak, uh, we have a, a drag bingo like business called um, what? That sounds awesome. And they do, they're, they're connected now with what was formerly like the gay bar that is now still, but they like remodeled the whole place and redid everything. I'm excited <laughs> to try it out when things um, are, are open again and it's safe, but they do drag bingo. And most of the time when I walk by, there's a bunch <laughs> of straight women sitting in there having a gag and that's great. Please patronize us with your money, please, you know. <laughs> come to give business etc but also i think it's important to still recognize that you are a guest in a queer space and so it's not acceptable to um you know grab the gay men uh it's not acceptable to um you know like another thing that always frustrated me is like sometimes I'd go to a drag show and there'd be like straight girls who would literally push their way to the front of the show past all of the gay people 
so that they could watch the show in front. And I'm like, I, I'm sorry, this is not, and it's not just straight girls. Like, I don't, I don't want to yeah. say it's just girls. There, there are straight guys who come to these places and then are, you know, acting all weird, uh, you know, when they get hit on by somebody acting all weird that somebody asked for their number, et cetera. And I just, in general, feel like it's really important. Like, please come, you are, anyone is welcome to come to any queer space that they have been invited to, or is that an, that is a public open space. Um, however, recognize that you, you have to be respectful of the people whose space this is. Cause we, like when I go to a, a straight bar, I feel every time I feel kind of on guard. I, I feel ultra aware of my surroundings because I have experienced homophobic slurs and behavior at straight bars. They are not safe spaces for me. Mm-hmm. A gay bar, on the other hand, is the only space I can go out and feel completely safe to be myself. So there, there just needs to be a, a regard and respect for that in recognizing um, the importance of retaining those spaces as spaces for queer people. Definitely. I would, I would definitely agree, even though I don't necessarily have like any experience with that yet, but I can definitely relate to just the concept of like having experience in a space where I don't feel safe just because of who I am. Like I've experienced that with like churches in recent years when like I go to one for whatever reason, usually for something related to family, like I don't feel safe there. Yeah. But we'll get through this pandemic and you'll be able to get all your your queer spacing on. I am so excited. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, uh, we've covered so much here and I think this is a good spot to leave it. Uh, Thank you so much for joining me tonight, Sean. I really appreciate your your insight and the wisdom that you've had to share tonight. Well, thank you for having me. (laughs) It's my pleasure. So, all right. All right, that does it for our sex, gender, and identity series. Um, Hopefully, everyone who listened learned a little bit of something, got some new perspective. If you'd like to send me any info that I didn't cover or may have covered incorrectly, I'm more than happy to uh, hear more about that. And I do plan on doing follow-up episodes on this topic. So I'm always open to feedback. You can always email me at mittenpolitics at gmail.com. If you uh, wanna see what other content I have or see when new content comes out, please follow my Instagram at mitten underscore politics. And I have a Facebook page as well at mitten politics that you can like and follow as well. I really appreciate the support that I've been getting for this podcast. My purpose with this is really education, informing people, uh, kind of helping people to understand why progressive values are so important especially when you think about things like this, thinking about identity, et cetera. This is obviously a topic that's very close to home for me. Um, And so, yeah, I'll just kind of leave it there. Uh, I will have new content coming out soon. I do anticipate taking a bit of a break between this episode and the next one. Kind of need my little mini vacation, uh, but I will be back with more content soon. So I'll be sure to update my social media as that, uh, that updated timeline comes to fruition.
Thank you. And uh, take care, everyone. You know, remember that change is political. And so get involved. Let's make a difference. Let's let our queer people know that we love them. Let's, you know, support our our Asian and black siblings. Let's let's make a difference. We have the power to do so. There's more of us than there are of the haters. There really are. And I know haters is such a term that's, you know, it's it's cliche. It's basic at this point to just use the term haters. But there really are more of us than there are of them. So stay strong, love each other, and let's go forth.